All right. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from the American Thoracic Society. Um, we are with the Ethics and Conflicts of Interest Committee, and I am Leslie Schooneman. I am an assistant professor of both geriatrics and pulmonary and critical care at the University of Pittsburgh. And I am Margaret Ann Carno, professor of clinical nursing and pediatrics at the University of Rochester School of Nursing. And I think what we were hoping to talk about today um, is about uh, respect for persons through the lens of kind of teamwork and culture. And we wanted to do this as a case-based presentation because um, I have a case that I've been thinking about for a long time and, um, and wanted to kind of think through it with a, a, an activated um, colleague uh, to try to see if what, what points we could learn about it. So Mrs. M was an 89-year-old woman who was on home nighttime BiPAP for re severe restrictive lung disease, um, secondary to kyphoscoliosis, and she presented to the CCU with mixed hypoxemic hypercapnic respiratory failure in the setting of an RSV pneumonia. Since she was DNR-DNI, she was maintained on BiPAP. Her son was her healthcare agent and had been her primary caregiver up to the time of hospitalization. He also assumed similar roles in the hospital, sometimes adjusting her BiPAP or doing her skin care. Whenever she had a setback, he demanded more of everybody, the nurse, the respiratory therapist, and the primary team. When I got involved as a pulmonary consultant, I focused on supporting him to try to facilitate patient-centered shared decision-making. His sister gave me feedback that I'd done an excellent job with him. However, I was aware that the staff were really, really stressed, and I felt in a nebulous way that I could have done better by them. And after Mrs. M died, one of the palliative care physicians led a team debriefing. And I learned that the son's bullying of the nurses and respiratory therapists escalated as she neared death. The patient whimpered, but her son refused even acetaminophen to help with pain. The skin on her face broke down, but he wouldn't allow breaks from BiPAP. So not only had the staff endured disrespect from the son, they felt doubly or triply bad because they felt they were providing care that didn't respect the patient as she died. And so I, you know, I, I thought, I really worried a lot that there were better ways to have help, respected the team members um, and the patient in this case. Leslie, when you would meet with the team or just, you know, on your daily rounding, how did the team react to, toward you? Did you pick up any clues that may have helped? I think I could tell that they were pretty, like, the medical team or the cardiac team was really stressed um, and was grateful that I was helping to offload some of the communication responsibilities with the family. I could really tell that the nurses were stressed, um, but it, again, it was kind of nebulous. I would try to check in with them and kind of ask if they needed anything, but they weren't giving me extra clues or there wasn't like a lot of traction where we could find a place to talk about it. I'm wondering, though, if the nurses were, um, as a former critical care nurse, I'm wondering if the nurses were so overwhelmed with the bullying from the patient, or I should say the patient's son, that they felt that there was no one they could go to. You know, that's always a thought from the bedside nurse's perspective who's there every day, you know, for hours at a time with a, a difficult family. We all... Um, get a whole, we all see them, whether it, as advanced practice providers, you as a physician, um, 
or me as a bedside nurse. So That's a really good point. Like, what do you think I could have, I mean, if that's the way that the nurses might feel, that there's nobody there to help them, how, what could I have done to kind of break down that barrier or to reach out? Maybe directly asking them, you know, how is the family dealing with all of this? Are you noticing any stressors of the family? Are the family treating you well? I think that that is um, a key component to ask. You know, how's the family responding and treating you with these decisions? Are they coming to you with multiple questions? Are you, um, is the bedside nurse handling different family members' interpretation of what the treating team is saying? I think checking in every once in a while that way really shows a respect for the nurses but also the family, too, because it is the nurses that are um, translating everything to the family um, or at least reminding the family of what they're hearing from the treating team. And I think collaborating, and I think nurses need to step back, too, and make sure that the family is treating the providers appropriately and that they're treating each other, every other nurse um, appropriately, that they're not triangling in the nursing staff. I think so. I think direct check-in is great. And so in a direct check-in, I think I I could do that. I think part of my worry would be that it sometimes it's hard to find effective strategies um, to manage the behaviors and 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 I I feel like maybe sometimes it's hard to come up with with kind of a plan for addressing the things that I identify when I ask. <laughs> that I think is where we can consult our psychiatry colleagues. I think that we don't realize that as much or our ethics teams. There it's a lot of institutions they can come in and help with difficult family behaviors, um, how to handle situations that don't feel comfortable. Like in this case, you said that the nurses felt that they were not providing the care that didn't respect the patient. Um, You know, maybe getting the palliative care team in, in this case, a little earlier. And I think that there had been a barrier from the family perspective because they hadn't been willing to hear about that part. Um, and so, you know, I I don't know, um, like they've been willing to engage with me, but they really hadn't been willing to consider the idea of a palliative care consult. So I think we'd struggled with, um, with that. But I think maybe um, even getting psychiatry or ethics involved could have been helpful. It may also just have been helpful to try to figure out what boundaries we could set so that the family knew how to interact with us consistently and respectfully. Because I think sometimes we just don't name those things very clearly. Um, and it, it feels a little uncomfortable to kind of say, or, or it takes some practice to feel comfortable saying, you know, when you do X, it's really hard for me to take care of your mom. Mm -hmm. 
Or maybe the other group to involve is social work on a more um, active role, if possible. You know, social work, that's, they're trained in communication much better than I think nurses are. And nurses are trained in communication well, as, in physici- as also physicians are trained. But I think that would help. I think that's definitely true. I think one of the other things that can often be difficult um, is that the um, shifts change. And so obviously there's a lot of different people in the mix. And even if we do come up with some suggestions for or some um, kind of guidelines for respectful communication or or rules for respectful communication um, with families, um, it's hard to make sure that all the team members know about them so that they can use them consistently. A written contract. That's what some places use, I have seen used, is literally a written contract signed by the family and whomever is the bedside nurse, and then that the incoming nurses at shift change re- know exactly what has been laid out and you don't risk um, the game of telephone or how things modify over time. You know, it's clearly delineated. I think that's a great idea. And I think with this, which is hard in the ICU, um, is that it looked like the sun just wasn't accepting of his mom's death or inevitable That's definitely true. That's definitely true. He was really struggling. And that's always hard. I mean, I know, Leslie, you've experienced it in a number of situations. That's hard for the family to accept. But it's not right for family to bully nursing staff or physician staff our respiratory therapy colleagues, and that needs to be put um, discussed very early on. You can't say, oh, you know, it was just one time or he's stressed. He or she's stressed if they get some sleep, maybe they'll feel better. So those are some thoughts. That's an important thought, I think, um, because often we'll kind of, let things go by for a day or two and then realize it's been five days and that, um, you know, things are kind of escalating and that the team is feeling increasingly stressed and we wish that we'd intervened earlier. Um, So uh, what kinds of thoughts do you have about how to kind of be consistent and identify people who need a little bit more support and structure early? I think just asking Maybe the t- a member of the team asking, you know, what are how are how's the family feeling, and I think maybe individually, um, sometimes it can be difficult where one family member is, you know, accepting of what's going on, and another family member is fighting or feels that the nurses are not caring well for the patient, that there's more that they could do. I think talking with them individually at a calm time, you know, say, hey, let's, you know, let's just step out for a moment. I'm, I'm just checking in on what you're doing. 
Now, is that realistic in every single family case in a busy ICU? Probably not. But I think seeing what the nurses are saying and asking the nurses directly, how are the family dealing with the current situation? And then bringing in our colleagues, especially social work or if there's counseling services, pastoral care, you know, to help with the process. Because as the bedside nurse or you as the treating physician, we have, you know, five, six, seven other patients to care for. And we can't spread ourselves thin. And we also have a duty to make sure we're caring for ourselves and not getting, um, I'm using the term because I can't think of another term, burnt out with one family because that's not fair to anybody. Well, and I appreciate your bringing it back to this idea of respect for persons because that's certainly where all of this started. And I think, um, obviously, the whole thing about respect for persons is that we have, we do have responsibilities to each other and to ourselves. And um, and I guess the way that I've heard the the principle for respect of respect for persons or the ethics of care articulated is, I'm responsible to you insofar as you're vulnerable to the consequences of my actions. And that means everybody that we interact with, right? Um, yeah. and, and especially our teams. And it really requires an engagement in the relationships that I have to understand what your interests are and look out for them. And, and you kind of have to understand my interests and how to look out for them. It really kind of makes a different concept of the team. And it makes it a process and not an event and really requires a lot of dialogue. And I feel like um, it's, it's a really hard thing to do, partially because, and maybe this is kind of another way of, of thinking about what you were just saying, that um, we start to feel stressed and pushed, and so we start to try to make um, boundaries, which is an appropriate thing to do, um, but sometimes you have to reach out to other people or at least kind of say, oh, wait a minute, I'm feeling stressed, it me everybody else is feeling stressed, that's when we need to pull in another colleague to help actually offload some of this stress and unpack, you know, whatever it is that's really driving it and help us to get, um, you know, some, some structure on this situation. Yes, I think that that's important because we somebody new into the situation may be able to shed light on what is going on without us even recognizing it. You know, it could be That's simple right. things such as, you know, in this case, um, maybe the son had somebody else at home. Or if there's a stressful family situation, Maybe it's because they've lived through this situation before and had a bad outcome, but they didn't want to tell the treating team, but they're happy to tell somebody else. They feel comfortable um, telling someone else. I, I did identify that for this son. He had um, been pretty traumatized by his father's death and was going through a lot of that, and I think that's part of Besides that he was bullying, I think we were also tiptoeing around him because we were trying to respect his feelings. Um, and I just think that uh, it, it it can sometimes be hard to find that balance where you can respect these people's feelings and also make sure that they're at least treating you respectfully. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, bringing in 
other colleagues who are not part of the treating team but are really there to support the family is very helpful if the institution has that, whether it is social work or pastoral care or some other counseling service, because that way if the family is feeling like they need, let's say they have an issue with me. I'm the bedside nurse and they have an issue with me, but they're afraid that if they tell another nurse that the care of their loved one may diminish by telling somebody outside of the caregiving team may help the family express anger, doubt, fears, frustrations. And I think it's really important. In in my career, I've seen it not used enough. And I and I feel from talking from to my adult colleagues it's the same on the adult side as it is on the pediatric side. And so you'd really think about that, about involving somebody from another team when, both when you identify serious, um, you know, uh, serious stressors in the family, but also serious stressors in the treating team. Is that right? Yes, yes. And um, and then and and one of the things that um, I guess I wonder about is kind of how we all develop a sense of um, is, was, uh, the recent New England Journal editorials by Lisa Rosenbaum were really fantastic, and she kind of talked some about psychological safety. How do we all develop maybe a sense of psychological safety in order to to reach out and kind of say, hey, wait a minute, I'm feeling like we need a consult. I think what that psychological safety is you have to feel comfortable with your skills and you have to feel comfortable with the people you are working with. If you feel uncomfortable that somebody is going to look down upon what you're suggesting, then you're not going to suggest it. But if you feel comfortable with the team and the team respects everyone, even if it is a junior person or if it's like a new nurse, if you still respect that the caregiver, the bedside nurse, while is new, does have stuff to bring and is learning, I think that provides the psychological um, safety for one to admit that, you know what, looking at the situation, I really think we need an external consult. If you don't have respect for each other, I think that's when you can't have psychological safety. It really goes to workplace culture. Yes, yes, it really does. And I think that a lot of places need to improve their workplace culture. We can all do that. Yeah, and I was just thinking, so this case that I brought um, is not in the ICU where I practice, but the ICU where I spend the most of my time. Um, we don't have as many of these issues because we actually have dedicated um a nurse nursing team that does a lot of the family support and communication, and they mm-hmm. just go ahead and take care of a lot of this stuff for us. And so I think, um, you know, that really in some ways reinforces the importance of um, exactly the principle that you're talking about. We don't have to get in a, 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 con- a consultant because we actually have a team member who's dedicated to that role, um, which is a pretty phenomenal resource. Yes. 
I bet a lot um, of ice wish they had that. Absolutely. We're really um, very fortunate. And, and again, going to the idea of culture, that we've had the institutional leadership to provide that resource for us, right? Um, and to recognize how important it is for, for everyone. Um, I guess one other question that, that um, I think you and I might have talked about previously, you know, sometimes things come up in the middle of the night, and I think that may be a time when, especially like things that are stressful for the staff, it may be hard to get passed along to the day team. Um, how, what, how could we possibly think, think through that? Um, a couple of ways, and I know exactly what you're talking about, or sometimes in the middle of the night while the nurse is providing care, the family will say something. Um, because there's not as many people around, they may feel more comfortable with the night nurse, or just that their guard is down a little bit because it is the middle of the night. I think just asking, um, instituting with the nursing staff, or depending upon what time the treating team rounds, is just asking the night nurse for their input. What is going on? What is needed? You know, did any issues from the family come up? You know, and make sure that, that anything like that is passed through report that is, you know, actually reported upon. Or if people get there early enough to ask the night nurse, you know, did anything occur? Or even the night resident or the, you know, the, the poor medical student who's been in there all night, they the family might have told them something because they know that they're really not part of the treating team and that they're learning and you never know what somebody's going to say to a student. So, you know, yeah. bringing everybody involved. It makes me wonder if we need like a little corner of the um, medical records that's like constantly updatable, that's like just those little notes that we make to each other about, here's the thing that I want the team to know. Yeah, you know, or to pass on, but we don't. I don't have anything like that in my medical record. I don't either. And you worry about putting stuff like that in the medical record for a wide variety of reasons. But we That's true. maybe get getting in the practice of just verbalizing that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, just making it kind of a a ritual, just like rounding. Mm-hmm. And just like a uh, handoff. Yes. Well, very good. Are there other things that you wanted to make sure that we talked about about this case? No, there isn't. It's a great case, Leslie, and I'm really glad that you brought it up because a number of things. It applies not to, just to adults but to the pediatric population. We always get involved in stuff like this. And also a chance to show really how an inner um, professional team can work together. I and thank you for inviting me to help participate in this podcast. I'm really happy that we were able to do this because you know I did um, learn a good bit from you, and I think that um, the idea of working on contracts to help provide some structure with some of these families is a really good one. So that and and making sure that it's like that the ownership kind of goes to the bedside nurse so that they're able to pass it along since they have the most patient contact and are really going to be the ones who, um, who, who need to be 
who need to be a part of both creating those rules um, and making sure that they're applied consistently so that everybody's well. Um, I think that, that that's something that I really want to try to develop for myself. That's great. Um, I guess I'd like to thank all of our listeners, um, and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have things that you want to tell us about that you plan to do differently as a consequence of this pod, um, you could uh, con leave comments on the American Thoracic Society Ethics and Conflicts of Interest website, um, and we would love to hear those. Yes. So everyone have a great day from both Leslie and myself. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.